19. I was wanting to take 12 through uh, 26, but I, I feel like that may have been an ambitious goal that, uh, that I'm not capable of achieving with any coherence. Uh, let me just make one statement here, um, because I think it may be helpful for you, and it's good for me to be reminded as well. Uh, we believe, or we practice here at Adirondack Bible Chapel, uh, sequential expository expositional preaching. Now, that sounds like some disease you don't want to get, doesn't it? <laughs> Whatever they're doing, I don't want no part of it. Um, well, it's not like that at all. What it means is we, on a normal, our normal practice is to preach through books of the Bible from the beginning, chapter 1, to chapter whatever it is until we get through the end of the book. Uh, so we, we on, a, uh, on every now and then, on special occasions, when someone's sick or holidays or other things, we do take breaks, uh, short series, but for the normal, we preach through books of the Bible. So Next week, wherever I stop off in John, we'll be back in the Gospel of John, and, and so there you kind of can follow along with us. The reason I mentioned that was a good comment that was made on our men's Bible study by one of our uh, men's Bible study patriots and uh, made the statement that it's good, it would be good to read along with the next message or the next set of uh, uh, verses that we'll be looking at next week. And I thought, what, a, what a, a joyful desire that is, a good desire that is, uh, to warm yourselves by the passage and warm yourself by God's word to be prepared to hear what God's saying about that passage the next Sunday. And, and all that to say this, uh, let me encourage you to do that. You know where we'll be next week, and so be reading through that and, and preparing through that. And as you do, pray for me uh, as you're reading them, because sometimes you'll be like, I don't know what in the world he's going to do with that. That's the same thought I get Monday morning or Tuesday or whenever I start. I don't know what in the world I'll do with that. Uh, so that gives you an opportunity not only to be familiar with a passage, but also uh, to pray for me as I make preparations or Ed or, or any other preacher that's preaching uh, through the book of the Bible. And so with that, uh, we are at John chapter number 12, and we're looking at traditionally an Easter, uh, uh, preparation for Easter, aren't we? It's kind of weird. It's November and leaves are changing. And here we are in preparation for Easter. Well, every Sunday's Easter. I see some of you are a little warm, are you? Uh, Won't you uh, turn the fans up just a little bit more? I'm warm too. (laughs) Misery loves company, but no sense of doing it intentionally. All right. I don't know how I'm going to get back to where I was. John 12, 12. Let me just read the first few verses again for uh, just for familiarization. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You may be one of the 18.8 million people that uh, sit down in front of your TV or some sort of device to tune in to the coronation of King Charles III on May 6th this year. Uh, You don't have to raise your hands for that. I think uh, 10 million Americans was participating and wondering what was going on. And for the life of me, I don't know why, other than the fact we might have been trying to figure out what it was we're missing uh, but nevertheless, it was a, a, a long day of celebration, which cost the 
uh, roughly around $125 million. It's not bad, is it, uh, for a coronation of king? What is of interest uh, to me as I was just kind of skipping through, the good thing of watching it after the fact, you don't have to watch the whole thing, you can just kind of fast forward it. Uh, what was of interest to me was the procession. When they picked up the, the soon-to-be crowned king and his wife uh, from the palace and they went their way, the 1.5-mile journey to uh, Abbey, Westminster Abbey, Westminster Abbey to, to this coronation service. 1.5 miles, about the distance that Jesus was from Jerusalem when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, the King Charles was pulled on what was considered to be a diamond jubilee uh, coach, uh, and, and probably because it was uh, very well um, decked out and furnished with um, all sorts of things pulled by six white hand-picked horses. It was quite the sight to behold. And here, in contrast, the king of heaven and earth is sitting on a donkey, riding in some backwood town in the Middle East during the time he rode in in Jerusalem, being held king of kings. Well, it was a time of the Passover. We know that the text tells us uh, the Passover was at hand as the first day of the week. And some argue whether it was Monday or whether it was Sunday. I, I don't necessarily think that that is important other than the fact that it's nice to know those sort of details. And Josephus said the town was so packed during Passover uh, that there was roughly around 2.5 million people, participants coming into this small city during uh, this festival this holy week of celebrating it may be it may be exaggerated a little bit but i mean that's a lot of people coming to celebrate uh, the passover and what is going on now <clears throat> this particular passover we know is jesus's last week and there's already been discussion in chapter number 11 whether jesus would actually even come to the festival we know that the jews had already plotted to put him uh, put him in prison. They already had determined that they were going to put him to death. And, and so the crowd was wondering at the end of, of chapter 11, well, is he even going to come to the Passover uh, and with everything that's going on uh, where the chief priest could arrest him? It's worth noting, just by way of kind of context, that Jesus earlier on at the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter number 7, he kind of snuck into that one. So halfway through the feast, he just kind of appears and starts preaching. It didn't, it's just like he appeared, you know, vanished and, and came there. He was hidden. He was, he was in a disguise of some sort, and he, uh, he began teaching somewhere in the middle of the week. But here, this, this moment, which is in front of us in John chapter number 12, he boldly and deliberately enters into Jerusalem in the most dramatic way, at least at this point, that we could, we could possibly imagine especially when the people are trying to say, well, we're going to put him to death. Now, you might remember this story in Matthew 21 and Mark 11, Luke 19. They all give broader accounts of what's going on in, in this, um, what is considered Palm Sunday or Jesus' triumphal entry. He sends his disciples to get a colt. 
uh, that's never been written. Luke talks about uh, the procession as he's entering into Jerusalem. He stops and begins weeping over the city because not only is he entering in as king, and you think, well, this is a high moment. He understands what's going to culminate from this week that he's about to embark on, and he weeps because of the destruction that will come about because of the rejection of him as king of kings. Jesus enters into Jerusalem of his own accord. His life is in his hands. His death and, and, and all that will be facing him is within his power, his control. You remember he said earlier, those of you who have been with us in the study of the Gospel of John, no one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. And he has authority, power to raise it up. But what is interesting is, in John chapter number 12, 12, that he enters in as a promised king. You might recall in chapter 6, the people wanted to make him king by force. He fed them with manna, or he didn't feed them with manna. He fed them with that lunch the little boy had, and, and the people in, in uproar, let's, let's make him king by force. He will be our king, and he withdrew from them. And yet here at this moment in the life and ministry of Jesus, before he's crucified, he is announcing to the world, allowing to be announced to Jerusalem and this region, that he is the promised king, the promised Messiah. And there would be no doubt about it. Uh, there would be no denying it. He allows it. And, and really... I want us to see this kind of celebration of the king that you see in our text this morning, verse number 13. Again, the next day, this was after the feast at uh, uh, Mary anointing his feet and his head with oil and, and all that was going on there. Verse number 13 says, as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, people began taking palm branches and and they begin shouting and crying aloud. And we know other texts tells us they were laying palm branches in the road so, so he could ride a, his, his animal across them. And people were laying their clothes down and, and so that he may walk upon the robes and other things like that. It was a, a great scene and a time of rejoicing. It was a time of celebration. There had not been a king in Israel for quite some time, many centuries. And now here, everything that they've been waiting for and the promise of the Messiah is on display. And, and Jesus, it's almost as if the crowd saying, now Jesus is finally accepting his responsibility he's been shrinking back from. And so loud, um, with loud proclamation and a state of excitement they've been they, they were crying out hosanna which simply means uh, save now or give salvation now and this is from psalms the psalms psalms 113 through psalms 118 where they would sing these during these festive times and as they were singing these they were they were calling on god's deliverance for the nation of israel such an uproar it was that that the pharisees were i don't know they must have been near jesus and they said jesus rebuke your disciples and tell them to shut up it's a rough translation but you get the point and what did jesus say is he not worthy of praise, church? He says, if they hold their peace, the rocks would cry out and, and proclaim him for who he is. And so you see this all going on, and, and you're, you're caught up in this. 
And some of the people had seen Lazarus being raised from the dead or, or running out and telling others, uh, telling others of what he has done. And people from Jerusalem that's, that's hearing the news ahead of him, they're running back and seeing him come in. And it, it was a great spectacle. Actually, the Bible says that the whole city of Jerusalem was in a stir because of this event. They were celebrating Jesus as this great promised king. Hosanna, save now, in case you're wondering, he goes on to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even, not the governor, not the prophet, even the king of Israel. This is the promised Messiah. In fact, the other other translations, I think Mark says it best uh, as you look at that. Mark 11.10, he says, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. I mean, this was a a religious and national high for the people in Jesus's day, at least the ones that were surrounded by him. They were laying palm branches. What's up with that? Well, let me just give you a little bit uh, that may be helpful to see that. Palm branches was a traditional, at this point in Israel's history, was a traditional sign uh, representing the nation itself. It, it was um, by the time midway through the Maccabean revolt uh, under Simeon, one of the, the, the sons, Maccabeans, uh, when he ran out the Assyrians, they, they waved palm branches and they had this great celebration with palm branches uh, to commemorate this great victory that was won for Israel. And since then, with the cleansing of the temple and all that went on during that intertestamental period, by the time Jesus came, a palm branch basically represented that national, that, that ethnicity, that, that zeal for the nation of Israel. So much so that when the Jews during the 66 through 70 revolted against Rome and rebelled against Rome, they had stamped in their coins palm branches. In fact, Rome decided to do the same thing, commemorating their victory over the defeat of Israel. Uh, They stamped palm branches in the coins saying, yeah, we won. Uh, So you get that. What were they doing? Well, they were celebrating this prophetic and they were anticipating this great deliverance, this national pride of, of Israel being raised up out from under the boot of their enemies. If we could get Rome and their foot off their necks and and he would come about and bring this sort of deliverance. And you can imagine the zeal of that for a nation that had been kicked around for centuries and in constant conflict. In fact, whether it's Rome or Greek or Syrians or Assyrians or, or any of the other things like that, actually them coming into Palestine, I'm going through Joshua, my readings in the mornings, and, and just that constant conflict that Israel has faced ever since being in the land, here comes the one king who's going to bring peace. Wouldn't you be happy? Well, of course you would. Waving palm branches and celebrating in this victory march. Now we call it the triumphal entry, which is a kind of paradox in itself because we know as he enters into Jerusalem that he will enter in ultimately in a few days at the, at the cries of crown him to the cries of crucify him. Will he not? And so it's kind of a weird oddity when you think about uh, referring to it as triumphal entry 
And it is in the text as well. Notice the verse that we find in verse number 14. They're crying out, King of Israel, calling for deliverance. And it's almost like the scene we find in Revelation 5, isn't it? Where where John is weeping because no one is able to take the scroll of the book. and, And the angel says, don't do that. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he will open the seal. John looked and what did he see? He saw a lamb. Isn't that strange? You think of a lion, you expect to see a lion. You expect to see uh, the, the, the fierceness, the intimidation. And when John looked, he saw a lamb. When you see a king coming in, coronation, you expect to see him being pulled by six white horses and a chariot and, and 200 military personnel. I mean, if we can do it in, in, in England and other parts of the world, then surely the king of all kings is worthy of something more than than riding on a donkey, riding on a colt, in fact. And yet that's what we find here. We see just this meek and lowly king, this gentle king. And the Bible tells us this is a reference back to Zechariah. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he commanded his disciples to go and get the colt because he was fulfilling the prophecy spoken about him by his father. He would not come to make war, at least not at this point. If you read the end of your book, you'll realize that's not always the case. But he came gentle, meek, and lowly. He came as one who is approachable. One who is humble. In fact, Zechariah 9, 9, uh, uh, where this is uh, played out from, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Your king is coming and he's going to be humble. Isn't that remarkable? You know what's so remarkable about that is because we want, we're attracted to the opposite in our human nature. I mean, how many of us gravitate towards those, even the boisterous, arrogant, proud, and the powerful that that display themselves as someone who can get something done. And so we're like, we we just throw, cast our lots in with them, those kind of people. That's what the world looks for. And yet here, the king that God has appointed over Israel, and not Israel only, but over the whole world, is coming meek and lowly. Meek and lowly. Isn't that exactly what you find in Matthew 11? And how does that remind you, church, as you think about this great king of the world seated at the right hand of the Father And doesn't it not remind you that though as powerful as he is and as exalted as he is, he is still approachable. Don't you like that? Doesn't that warm you and remind you that there is help at the throne of grace by our great king? I know you've been around people, probably people who have thought more of themselves than they ought to think. How many many of you have, have met someone like that? There's in other people that have had some kind of prominence. They're popular, whether it's in the Christian circles or the circles of the world. And you meet them and you realize you would never confide in them or, or were, were never attracted to them. They're not approachable. They're on a whole different plane. 
their heads in the clouds, whatever it is, too big for their britches, whatever illustration you want to use, you just are not warm to them. And yet there's others that you meet that you find this could be a true friend. And we see something like that in our Lord and Savior, don't we? Approachable, meek, and lowly. Zechariah 9 promises, and I'm just going to give you these fairly quick or as quickly as I can. Three things, uh, and we're just going to dwell on the first one. The the next two will be fleshed out as you look at the remainder of this. Uh, Zechariah is promising this humble king will provide two things, three things. One is he's going to put away war. It's going to be done away with. He's going to bring about peace. In fact, you see that in Isaiah 2.4 prophesying to the very same thing. They'll be beating swords into plowshares. Shares. Or think of it this way. You're, you're, we're going to be turning our tanks into tractors and our F-16s into crop dusters. Wouldn't that be great? Some of you, actually, you, you're not sure if you'd like that kind of idea. You know, it's kind of, we're, we live in a real world. We can de-arm the rest of the world, just not our, our nation, you know. But the Bible promises this, this king that will come, this king, God's king, this humble king, will put an end to war. He will bring about worldwide peace. In fact, in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, that's exactly what he is referred to in one of the titles, isn't it? Of the increase of his peace, there will be no end because he is the prince of peace. Now you, many of you know this, and some of you may not be as familiar with this, that Christ, this humble king, has come to make peace between God and man, between the creator and his creation, and, don't miss this, between man and man. But the order has to be right, doesn't it? We try to deal with peace on a horizontal level without any regard to the gospel implications and the means that God has given to us to make peace with one another. And that is the fact that Jesus Christ first and foremost came to make peace between God Almighty and humanity. To appease and satisfy the wrath of God for the offense of our rebellious heart. Now, some of us don't like that, and I agree, it's kind of rough. But if God is a king, and I'm speaking in speculation here because he is a king, so we could just move the if out. He is a king, and he has declared the, the boundaries for human flourishing and conduct. He has given a law, and the Bible says continually, not just the wicked, But continually, all of us have been in violation of that law. Well, to put it in another way, in biblical terms, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And just in a human standpoint, if you violate the law of the land, if you violate the law of this state or this county, then justice demands that you be punished. Would you agree with that? A couple of you agree with that. That's good. In fact, what we find is a measure of indignation in our own hearts because God created us in his image. We find indignation when justice is forfeited or when justice is perverted, don't you? Can you honestly look at the world we live in, society and the way it's going, and and, and just be unmoved and impassioned by, by injustice 
and the wicked continually going on, becoming more and more wicked. Uh, the, the, the innocent by our standards and the, and the abused continually being stomped on while the wicked just go unpunished. How much more does that indignation, how much more does that, that right and that desire to judge rest in a God who is completely holy, completely, truly just? In fact, if he was impassionate about sin, then he would not be God at all. He would not be holy. He would not be loving. He would not be who he is but he is just and because he is just and righteous we know that justice will have its day either either in this life or in the life to come and what that means is that you and i cannot have a a a thriving communion fellowship with god as long as our guilt remains As long as there's hostility, our rebelliousness against his law, against his word, against his way, and the judgment of God or the condemnation of God resting upon us. There can be no peace. There can be no comfort. There can be no rest. And actually, if you look at eternity, and especially eternity for those who die outside of Christ, it is described as a restless, a peaceless eternity. Because the wrath of God remains upon them. And this humble king riding into Jerusalem is that mediator which has come to bring peace and reconciliation. That's the doctrine of propitiation which simply means he has come to satisfy the judgment of God for you and me. For all those who put their faith and trust in Christ. Because there is no rest until rest is found in Christ. We speak about peace in many different levels, but it all flows. The greatest reality or the greatest peace that we could ever experience is that peace with God, that peace that moves him from being a judge and condemning us to that of a father and receiving us. And Jesus brings us that peace, reminding us that while in sin, while the sin remains and rebellion remains, the guilt is ours, the judgment awaits us. And it doesn't matter whatever we tell ourselves at night and however we want to comfort ourselves, if this is where we are between us and God, there is no peace. And yet, isn't that the very reason why Christ was abandoned by his father isn't that the reason why he came to take the jeers of humanity and the the stripes upon his back so that what stood against us could be poured out and extinguished on his own body we'll see that more as it goes on in chapter number 12 he has come to make peace that you and i might have communion with god Take joy in him and more than, than just the communion and joy that we find in God now, but, but come to anticipate and, and desire to be with him. Uh, many folks desire to be in heaven. Many want a blessed next life and many want the, the, the blessedness of being around friends and families. But, but is that desire anywhere being in the presence of God? 
Isn't that the great joy, the pinnacle of heaven? Being in his presence. And nothing prepares us for that. Nothing works that in our heart except for the gospel and the peacemaking work of Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Luther was a great example of this. If you read anything about Martin Luther during the time of the Reformation, he would tell you openly that he secretly hated God because to him God continually stood as a condemning judge. But he found, as he come to understand, justification was a free gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ and not in his own works did he come to love and he said it was almost as if the prison bars were opened up and justification is simply meaning that fact of God declaring us not guilty but let me just mention on a horizontal level uh, and, and offer you a promise here that you can have peace when you go home today with God you know that You can come in here this morning and have all sorts of anxiety and frustrations and fear about what's going to happen next, but you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ, this gentle king. But this affects us on a horizontal level. And that is, as we are born again, as God makes peace with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he he sheds his love abroad in our hearts, doesn't he? And so we're our inverted selves, our inward uh, self-loving, self-promoting mentality. We were selfish. Can I say that? How many of you agree with that? Agree? Okay, you can say I was selfish. And God transforms that. And through the love of God in our heart, he gives us a love for the brothers and sisters in Christ and a a love for our neighbor. And that is is supernatural. Do you have a love for the well-being of others around you? Now, that's not to say you cannot know the Prince of Peace and still seek war and conflict with one another. That's true, isn't it? There's many Christians who know Jesus Christ, who've who've experienced the life-saving work of the gospel and who live in constant conflict. And I would say part of the problem is they have forgotten what Christ has done for them. They misunderstood. They're walking in sinfulness. They're consumed by their own lust and their own ambitions at the expense of others. They are themselves a walking contradiction. It happens. The church of Ephesus is a great example of that in Revelation 1. And it's my desire as a church that we would not be that way. My desire for you as a Christian in my own life is that as knowing the Prince of Peace, you would seek to live this out as much as possible, as much lies within you. Well, Christ the promise of peace, this humble king. Uh, he mentions again in Zechariah 9.9, 9, I'll just briefly mention it. We'll see it more later on. He has come to rule from coast to coast, from the ends of the earth, one end to the other. And he has come to set the prisoner free. So if I could go back and look at this again in verse number 12, let me just read these few verses again, verse number 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. You know, these people did not make him king, did they? He is king by the very promise of God. 
by his very heritage, by his person, by who he is. Uh, The same thing is true with us. We don't make him king, do we? We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. There are moments where we have to come to the reality whether or not we will submit to that reality. But he is who he is. He is a great king. He is a great Lord. Psalms 2 in Revelation gives us a great vivid illustration of that, doesn't it? High and lifted up. What does that mean for us? Let me give you three things very quickly. One, it means he is right now ruling in the heavens. He is right now, Lord, ruling in the heavens. Consider Matthew at the end of this great commission that's given to them. And he says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I know some of your translations have all power is given to him, and it's not a bad translation, but he's not talking about their necessarily supernatural or his ability to do big and amazing things. He has those. We see that all through the gospel. How many of you believe that? So we're on the same page, and I'm... He is speaking there, all right to rule. All authority over the nations have been given to him by the Father. And so he is sending his church out beyond boundaries of language and boundaries of nations, saying they have a right to preach the gospel, make disciples in every nation because he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is king of creation. Is ruling now and their accomplishment of the mission which he is giving them to do to build his church will be successful because he is not off the throne somewhere doing whatever they do when they get off the throne. He is continually at the task of building his church and that's why it will not fail. He is Lord, he is King and Matthew Uh, In this passage in particular, he is reminding us that he is using his sovereign power and might to bring about, build his church and bring about the completion of his bride. That's why we go to the ends of the earth. Now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is now Lord. He is now King. But the Bible reminds us that he is also King of the church. He is head of the church. Peter calls... Jesus, that chief shepherd in First Peter 5, Paul refers to him as the head. Now, we don't use terminology like that. We don't know what that is. In fact, if we knew what it was, we'd probably be offended by it because we're literally offended by everything in our culture, let alone anybody having any authority. Well, if we could say it like this, it is his church. This is his church. This is his body. It's his bride. It's... It's his. He is the sovereign king over his church. He has all right to rule and govern and to guide his church in ways that please him and to accomplish his purpose and his plan. In fact, you see this in Revelation 1, don't you? As he's standing there. Let me just read a few verses. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, that those those that are those that are taking place after this. I'm going to clunky. 
As for the ministry of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, what does that have to do with him being king? Well, if you read Revelation 1, you realize two things. One, he is present in the midst of his churches. He is walking amidst the seven lampstands. He knows exactly what is going on. And and two, you see this possessing the the ministers or the voice to the churches are in his right hand. He is simply saying to those who are in leadership and to the church whole, his authority, his right is the right to rule. But how does he govern his church? Well, I think you see it in the text, don't you? The beginning of verse 19, Revelation 1, 19, right, therefore, he governs it through his word. In fact, we were reminded of Calvin's statement when he said, Christ is a king and his scepter is his word. And we have no business claiming an autonomy that is counter to the word of God. And haven't we done that as a culture? Christianity as a whole in America. We've kind of bartered with society and the secular movement and the vernacular of what is going on and what is accepted and and at the expense of the mandate and the command of our great king, we have sold out and, and, and sold ourselves under someone else's authority called a godless secular society. We see that all throughout New England, don't we? as we embrace those things that God has declared sinful and wrong and an abomination. We have no right to disregard, to delete, or despise what God has clearly revealed to us in his word. If we are to be a church that is submissive, recognizing him as king and authority, then we must be submissive to the one law, one rule he's given to us, and that is his word. Amen? But I want to speak on a more personal level than just the church collectively. Jesus spoke to those in his day in Luke 6, and you might recall this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Do you call him, if I could ask you and meddle in your life as I have in my own life, do you call him Lord and yet despise his command? You despise his rule? You bow down with your voice and, and yet with your mind and with your actions, you are serving yourself or some other God as was preached last week. If we are his subject, should we not live according to his mandate and according to his laws? In fact, Peter reminds us of that, doesn't he? When he says we're pilgrims and strangers here, we're to seek those things that are above. Paul says where Christ is seated, that's where our life is. And, and if this is where our life is, this is where the kingdom which we belong and are a part of, then this should reflect in our actions in this life. How often and how easy it is to say Jesus is Lord, but, but how many verbally assent to that and yet live their lives devoid of any mark of the Bible on them. And I know we fall short. How many of you are aware of that? That was an easy one, wasn't it? And yet if Christ is our Lord, if he is a great king, not just over the church, 
than he is so over my life. And there are times where that, that bears its reality on whether or not I will submit to his will or my whatever it is. If he is a great king, then he is not only king over the church, but he is king over me. I, if I am his subject, then I am subject to his word and his mandate. And can I say this, if a church, a people making up of the church is not submissive to him as king, then the church collectively will not submit to him as king. If we don't come and see this as his, the way in which he governs not just the church, but governs our own lives, his word, then uh, it doesn't matter what we do together. Might as well have another golf outing and just leave it at that, right? But the third thing, not only is he head of his church, not collectively, but also individually, we're reminded he will universally be acknowledged as king. Philippians 2, you can turn there with me. It's a great place to come to a conclusion. Philippians 2. <clears throat> begin reading in verse number five having this mind among yourself which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, don't you like the therefores in the Bible? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God Father, no one will be exempt from seeing the glory and accenting, acknowledging the majesty of King Jesus. No one. Everyone will bow down and see him for who he is. Uh, The proud and rebellious, the boastful, the wicked... The ungodly of our age will one day bow down before him and acknowledge he is king of kings. Everyone will bow down. Everyone will bow the knee in this life or the next. All will see and acknowledge him. But let me just say, beloved, what reward in bowing down now? Acknowledging, submitting to him now. What life he has promised to those who humble themselves. You'll see that in the verses ahead, even next week. That we come, exalt him, see him high and lifted up, reverence him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, dear friends, uh, we all have that appointment, don't we? To stand before the bar of God. No one is exempt. Now that we stand there, having had peace 
made for us by our great king, that humble king, Jesus, or we'll buckle under the weight of our own guilt and the condemnation which is rightfully ours. Today is the day of salvation. Now is accepted time. If you would ever make peace, then make it while you're still here, while there's still an opportunity. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. I pray that you let it minister to our hearts. And Lord, we pray even as we conclude the thoughts in which you've spoken to us, and I trust you have through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would prepare us not only for tonight in communion, but prepare us for eternity in Jesus' name. Amen.